We'll go ahead and jump into it this morning. Uh, I'm going to start in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And uh, we've, we've started a sermon series here on uh, the phrase that Jesus said when he was talking to Peter. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We're talking about building the church and obviously that's something that Jesus does and he does it through us as we participate with him. And so last week we talked about the church specifically and what the church was called to be in the world. But this week I want to speak to you about community. Uh, so you can flip to your notes on the back and we'll go through that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Uh, we'll read that and we'll, then we'll jump into it. Amen. All right. Verse 42, Acts chapter 2, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being, 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 saved, being saved. Father, we're, we're grateful for your word. And Lord Jesus, we, we read about what New Testament community looks like, filled with the Spirit of God, has been commissioned by Jesus and called to this world to preach the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that in our hearts, Lord, you would, you would open our hearts to receive your word this morning. And God, you would teach us what true New Testament community looks like. And Lord, I need help, God, as you, as you give me the words to speak so that, Lord, it would have weight on it. And Lord, it would change our hearts and our minds to think in line according with your will. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I was reading this, this book, this guy named uh, Rodney Stark wrote. He's a sociologist. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he made this statement about the early church, and he said, the growth of the early church is arguably the most remarkable sociological movement in history. And he said, really, if you look at the church and how it grew, he said it didn't grow because they had these big evangelistic things and they put tents up and they tried to, to preach like Billy Graham to thousands and get millions converted. He said, but they started in small, loving communities and day by day, individuals were being saved and they were planted and rooted in a certain type of lifestyle that caused gradual increase. But as they increased, it became exponential. And he, he, also, said, he also said that once... The church became a state church in the Roman Empire in the year 350. There were so many people that were coming in that were not truly committed to the practices of Christianity that the growth actually started to stagnate. In other words, when it became easy to be a Christian, Christianity started failing as what it was in the beginning. That made, isn't that interesting to think about? That's what he said. He said, when it became easier to be a Christian, when there was no more persecution, when there were no demands on people's lives, but when everybody was just doing it and it was the popular thing, then Christianity, for what it was, the growth began to stagnate, their practices began to stagnate, and the church slowly began to weaken more and more. But he said they grew because of social networks and community that loved one another. Now, notice this. In A.D. 40, listen to this, right? Right after Jesus died, there were roughly about a thousand Christians in the Roman Empire. And by AD 350, by, by the year 350, there were almost 30 million and 53% of the population had converted to Christianity. And you ask yourself, now listen, when you think about how Christianity started, it started with one man preaching in a pretty local spot. Jesus didn't go outside of, of Israel. He, he stayed mostly in Galilee, preaching to a select few. He, he got some disciples to follow him. He had 12 that were committed to him while he was in ministry on the earth. And you know, after his resurrection, he only had several hundred followers and you wonder how in the world did he go from 700 followers to this actually becoming the biggest religion in the world, period. How did it grow from one man just teaching 12 guys and those 12 guys beginning to create communities? And listen, when they started, they did not have what we consider to be essential to the faith. They didn't have, they didn't have recognized church buildings. They didn't have next steps. They didn't have the finished New Testament, 
They didn't have preachers with sneakers and celebrity preachers and stuff like that. They didn't have social media or anything like that. All they had was what they had heard from Jesus and the apostles' doctrine that they were continuing to spread. And what they had more than anything was these communities that were built on love. See, the early church leaders, they were living a lifestyle that was far different than the one that we live today. And because of the community that they had, that's what it was really about. The community that they made where they were committed and devoted to one another, they actually turned an empire upside down and put the Roman Empire on its knees because of what they were doing. And all of this in the face of being persecuted, in the face of being put to death, in the face of some people losing their lives for what they believed in. And it all started in Acts chapter 2. We know that the church was born on the day of Pentecost. The church was born, they, Jesus actually said to them, he said, boys, I, I know you want to go out, I know you're excited, you want to go out and, and preach the gospel, and really the truth is they weren't that excited in the beginning. They were afraid, they were hiding for fear of the Jews, and they were, they were afraid that they would get killed the same way that Jesus got killed. And Jesus says, but here's what I want you to do, guys, I want you to go and wait in Jerusalem, and I want you to pray and wait until you are clothed and endued with power from on high. And for 10 days, 120 of them were in an upper room and they were praying, they were, they were, they were seeking God. And on the, on the day of Pentecost, after 10 days of praying in the upper room, the scripture says that suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the place where they were sitting. It would be like sitting in this room and we were all praying and seeking God in this room for, for 10 days. And all of a sudden there's a sound that breaks through. The spirit fills the place and the fire of God begin to set on people's heads. That's crazy. It literally says that there were tongues like as of fire that rested upon each, each person's head. Can you imagine sitting in this building looking around and everybody be like, man, there's a flame over here on Sam Kelsey's head. It'd be an odd day in a church house, wouldn't it? But it'd be a good day in the church house. And they were all filled with the Spirit. They begin to speak in languages and they bust out of the room and they come out of the place and they're all speaking in these, these known languages. And there are people from all different dialects and regions of the world. And they begin to hear these people speaking. And it says that they're confused. They're marveled. They're perplexed, wondering what in the world's going on. Somebody said, man, these guys have got to be drunk. And then Peter stands up and he says, listen, fellas, these guys are not drunk as you suppose. It's just 9 a.m. If it's 3 p.m., maybe they'd be drunk. I don't know. No, he didn't say that. He says, it's just 9 a.m. He said, they're not drunk as you suppose, but this is that which was spoken about by the prophet Joel. He said, Joel said that in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And in those days upon my hand, hand servants and my maidens will I, will I pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And he stands up and he begins to preach the gospel to all these people. And 3,000 people are convicted. They say, what must we be, do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. And 3,000 people are saved on this day. Now, I want you to consider this though because in our day and age, if tongues of fire start resting on people's head and everybody's speaking in tongues and something just intense starts happening and all the people are amazed and perplexed and confused what would we do probably like we would probably say you know what boys we need to figure out how to harness this we need to have revival services every night we need to get on social media and put it out there and we need to try to bring as many people in as we possibly can but that was not their response how did they grow how did they change the world after God filled a body of believers with the spirit they first went outside of the doors you know, when we talk about Pentecost today and, you know, Pentecostals, what they love to do is have a, have a real time, you know, in the church house. And I'm not necessarily against having a real time in the church house, but my point is, is that Pentecost always goes outside. When people are filled with the Spirit, it does not stay inside of the church house. It does not stay inside of the building. It moves beyond the building into the community. And so when you see true revival, it doesn't look like really, really good wild church services. True revival looks like people going out into their community to proclaim the gospel, to love people, and to invite people into a new way of life. And it so affects the community that you see the community being changed. That's what real revival looks like. And for so long in the church, we thought that revival is calling a series of services throughout the week and getting as pumped up as you possibly can and getting as excited as you possibly can. And I like that stuff. I'm fine with that stuff. But that is not what biblical revival is. 
Okay? Biblical revival enters into the community. It reaches out into the community. It transforms the community. They are filled with the Spirit, and their idea is not, hey, boys, let's just stay up here in the room and speak in tongues as much as we possibly can. Their idea was let's go out and preach the gospel, and let's create loving communities on a day-to-day basis who teach the apostles' doctrine, who pray together, who live in fellowship, who break bread together, who go to people's houses daily, one, one another, sharing with one another daily in each other's houses until we build a community that loves one another so much that it is appealing to the world around them. Somebody amen me this morning, right? We doing all right so far? See, we want, we are seeking to become a community just like that, that prays and seeks God, believing for the Spirit of God to be poured out in our midst, which will lead us to create a loving community that is committed to the mission of Jesus. That's what we want. We want a New Testament church with a New Testament community. But let me give you a couple of things. There are two challenges. There are two challenges to this New Testament community. Two challenges to this going on. Now, the first one, I was reading a couple of things, and I came up with these two things based on what I was reading. And the first one, you may say, well, I don't really know about that one. But the first one is loneliness. You can put that in your notes. The first one, the first challenge to creating New Testament community is loneliness, and I was reading an article that said that we are now more lonely, lonelier than ever than we have been in America. And for the most part, it has to do with the fact that we're more connected to devices than we are to human beings. And even when we're connected to human beings, we're actually connected to them through devices. And we don't have deep interpersonal relationships. Like, you know how often I will be talking with people and they'll, have, they'll be dealing with deep issues and they will be texting me their deep issues. And at some point, we'll get to the point where we're like, you know, this is not really something you can share on text. I need to look in that person's eyes. I need to have a conversation with them. They're sharing their heart. They're sharing their life with me. We need to look each other eye to eye because there's so much that is missed in translation and we feel disconnected. And see, what loneliness is, is really at the end of the day, you feel disconnected from people. You have no deep connections that feel that inner longing, that inner desire in your heart. There was this, uh, uh, Cigna did 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 a test, they did a study and they made something called the Cigna Loneliness Index And they studied over 20,000 adults in America, and they said that 50% of Americans report sometimes or always feeling alone or left out. One in four Americans rarely or never feel that people understand them. One in five report that that they never have close people that they feel like they can talk with about things. And only one half of Americans say they have at least one meaningful personal relationship where they can talk with other people on a daily basis. That means that one half of all Americans don't have a deep, meaningful relationship where they feel like they can know and be known. And in America, there is this thing where it's just like, you know, the scripture says that in the end, we're going to see Jesus as he is and we are going to know even as we are fully known. I'm able to show God my entire self, my entire being, and know that he knows me fully, and now I know him fully, and I know that I'm fully loved, and therefore I fully love him. And see, you want to be in relationships with people where you can share your heart with them, your deepest secrets, your worst sins, your your, 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 your most fearful moments, all of those things that are going on in your life and be able to share that with them and not be afraid that maybe they're going to judge you. Maybe they're going to tell somebody else. Maybe they're going to break your trust. You become vulnerable. You're afraid you might get wounded and you don't enter into connection with people that actually creates what we call New Testament love. I mean, in America today, what love really means is you just, you just sort of affirm everybody and say, hey, buddy, and pat them on the back and don't really do anything. But love means you're entering into a connection with a person, a personal relationship that actually means something. And see, loneliness, it, it, it ends up producing mental health concerns, they said, anxiety, depression, suicide. It ends, it ends up in these different things. And loneliness and, and social isolation, they made this statement can be as damaging to your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. One central longing of the human heart, like I said, is to know and to be fully known. Now, if you're like me, one of the reasons people are lonely is because sometimes they're introverted and they're afraid to step out into new areas. They're afraid to take a step of faith. Can I tell you this, that you need to take a step of faith if you're going to enter into biblical-type loving relationships, it's going to be difficult and challenging for you. Now, let me just... I'm a pastor now, and I've worked through some issues, and I'm still working through some issues. And I, I, I'm, I'm so introverted that I have 
a little bit of like social anxiety, you know what I'm saying? And I remember when I, I moved to Cleveland, Tennessee, and I moved down there by myself, and I was living there for like a year, and I went into this big church, like 3,000 people every Sunday, and I, and I start going to that church because I'm living there. I don't really know anybody, and I, and I go for probably a month, and then about a month in, I notice this guy keeps looking at me out of this corner of his eyes, and I'm just kind of like, no, I got to avoid this dude. I can't be letting nobody into my life. It's going to be awkward. It's going to feel weird. And, and, and so all of a sudden, one, one Sunday, I see he's got, he's got locked in on me, you know what I'm saying? And he starts following me, so I get up and I start walking out, walking out of the church, you know. And, uh, and, and you, you would think, man, why wouldn't you just wait and see what this guy's up to? You know you're craving relationship because that was the loneliest time in my life. I'd never been lonelier that I know of in my entire life. I felt alone. I was lonely. But at the same time, I was isolating myself. And honestly, I was becoming spiritually very weak. I was, I was becoming susceptible to all sorts of temptation because I wasn't in community. And all these things were going on. And this guy was literally chasing me out of the building. And he said, listen, man, hold on a minute. I want to talk to you. And I just kept walking. I said, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. And, and, he, and he started talking to me and he was like, listen, won't you, get, won't you come and eat with me and some of my friends? I looked back and there was like 20 of his friends and immediately I broke out into a hot sweat. You know what I'm talking about? And I was like, I was like, that's ah, all right, man. I got, I'm, I'm good. I got stuff to do. And, and, and I ended up just walking out on this guy, not even allowing myself to connect with him. Have y'all ever been in that position? You just say, you're filled with anxiety, you're filled with fear. What I want to do this morning is I want to rob you and take away any, any, of, any of that. I want to just say, let's take that away from you this morning because you're going to have to take a step of faith. And let me tell you something, in churches today, I went to one church where they were doing some kind of training and we were listening to this training about what you got to do in your churches and all this. And they said, you know, you need to offer your churches a hassle-free guarantee. And you know, the word hassle means to take time or effort. Yeah, God forbid anybody should take time or effort doing anything in our world. I, I do not, here's what I would say. I'm not going to offer you a hassle-free guarantee because loving people is going to take time and it's going to take effort. And you will never make it to the place where you truly love people the way that Jesus taught us to love people unless you actually take time and you take effort and you put yourself in very vulnerable positions and you step out, out on faith to enter into connections and in relationships with people. Somebody amen me this morning. You got to push through that stuff, man. Every day, I, I'm telling you, I'm so introverted. I get done preaching on a Sunday morning and I black out for about two hours because I just, I basically just poured my heart out and opened myself up to, to how many ever people there are here. And, and, it, and it, it almost throws me into shock because I'm so introverted. But you have to push through that stuff. And every day I hear the Holy Spirit saying, son, you may feel that way, but those feelings are not real. It's not who you really are. You were made for loving community. You were made for loving relationships. And I want to bring you into that. See, in our consumer culture, we favor products that are ready for instant use and instantaneous satisfaction. We got a money back guarantee. We want everything as quick as possible. And now churches are actually adopting an economic consumer model. Let me tell you something. If the early church had adopted an economic consumer model, it would have died in the first 100 years. Because it was not real, it was not countercultural. And now the church is no longer countercultural. They are exactly like the world. And we try, well, like we have, look, and I'll be honest with you, we've got coffee, we try to make things easy for people. But at the end of the day, honestly, Donald and myself know that we may actually be catering to your selfishness more than we are making disciples out of you. You understand what I'm saying? Church is not about coffee. It's not about your level of comfort. It's not about how many good programs we can offer you so that your children are, are just in, in the perfect situation. We want all of those things to happen. And let me be real and let me be honest with you. We will get better at all of those things because we do want programs to run effectively and efficiently. But if those programs do not change your heart and you don't enter into loving community, you have superficial relationships, superficial Christianity, and you're just living a consumer Christianity like the rest of America. And it becomes so easy, just like what the sociologist says, it becomes so easy for people that it doesn't transform anybody else. Because they look at your life and they say, yeah, church is cool. Y'all do just what Starbucks does. Yeah, church is cool. 
Y'all are doing exactly what Amazon does and everything. And like I can even come in and actually put five stars on your church now on Facebook to tell whether or not I liked it or not so that other people can come in and read whether or not they enjoy it or not. It's not about whether or not how much you enjoy it. It's about whether or not you're willing to lose your life to follow Jesus and love people who nobody else is loving. Who nobody else is loving. Man, I wish we could just take that consumer stuff. And you know, Donald, he's been preaching this to me for three years because then that's why he wants to go to Africa. Because you may tell you what is not in Africa is that. Now, there may be in some different spots, you get into some of the bigger cities, they bought into the same thing. They're listening to the TV preachers. They're doing all that stuff too. And, and, and all of those, there are some good elements to that. Like I said, we do want to make it an environment where people can come in because when people come in that are lost, they, they need that connection. That, but if you're not moving them past that, man, that's a dangerous situation to be in in the church where you're never moving people past that superficial consumer culture. Amen. Love is hard, friends. It takes time. It requires trust. And we want it to be a commodity. Just like with small groups. It's like, hey, we know you need relationships. Let us offer you a small group. Small group is not an ends in itself. Small, group, small groups is a medium by which we try to connect you with people and you all get the understanding that, okay, now we're entering into New Testament covenant relationships where I care for this person. I carry this person's burdens. I worry about this person sometimes and I intercede for them and we teach together. We study the Bible together. We're developing a relationship so when, that we can minister to the world and when the world sees us, they say, man, these people are deeper than just friends. These people are family. The church is, we talked about this last week, one thing that it is is a family. Amen. Loneliness. See, you can have everybody do things for you, and sometimes the more convenient it is, sometimes the more convenient something is, the more shallow and surface it makes your actual practice and existence. And we don't want to be shallow and surface. We want to move to a deep Christianity, something that's real. And we live in a, in a world today where... Honestly, in our culture, parents will leave children, spouses will leave spouses, we separate, our families move. I mean, even in your, your, your families, they're scattered all over. My family, you got some in Lexington, you got some over in this place, you got some over in that place. They're scattered everywhere because we just live in that. And, and the, these sociologists, they call them Velcro relationships where you're not rooted into any community and you can just sort of be plucked up anytime. Now, now let me be honest with you, God will move you sometimes. God will uproot you. He'll replant you in different places. He will do that. But you got to be sensitive to where God is planting you because until you are planted and you take deep roots, it's going to be hard for you to grow. And what happens is, is we're just all a bunch of transplants with no roots. And it's easy. You can, a good hard wind will just blow the plant somewhere else. Any kind of difficulty that shows up. See, a con consumer culture teaches churchgoers to say, I'm going to try this church out. If the preacher says something I don't like, if somebody acts up the way I don't want them to act up, I'm gone. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty much the mentality of the majority of human beings. Somebody amen me this morning. Can I tell you that that is not okay? That that is not acceptable? That if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you don't get to church shop. Now you can go around and you can look, but what you're looking for is where, God, are you planting me? Because no matter where I go, it's going to be difficult. It's going to take a step of faith on my part. There are going to be crazy people there. There are going to be people that do weird stuff. There are going to be people that aggravate me. There are going to be people that believe differently than me. And I've got to figure out how to love them in the midst of that. Somebody amen me this morning. Lord God. Yeah, I'm preaching good. Praise the Lord. We long for this community, but our culture has trained us in a way where we don't have the skills or the character to be able to make the real kinds of commitments that it takes to create New Testament community. I mean, I wonder if there really is a New Testament community somewhere in this world. I'm sure there is. But man, it's hard. It's hard for us, dude, because we are, we've been trained by our culture 
Psalm 68, verse 5 and 6. Let me read a couple of verses to you considering loneliness. God is a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. See, the church represents the father's heart to the world. The father wants to adopt people. He wants to bring the, the orphan in who have no connection to people who are broken and lost. And he wants to put the spirit of adoption in their heart where they begin to cry out, Abba, Father. And they know that they love. They, they know that they're cared for. They know that God wants to know them, that wants to personal relationship with them. And then the next verse says, God sets the lonely in families. Now this is actually speaking, I believe, about the church specifically because the church is designed to be a family. Even when Jesus, they said, they said, Jesus, your, your, your mother, your brothers and sisters are over here. He said, listen, my brothers and sisters and my mother are those who do the will of God. Now, I'm not saying that you forsake your families, but what I am saying is that God is saying there's, there's a family that is greater, and that's that family that is bound by the Spirit of God and the salvation in Jesus Christ that he brings. See, he seeks to adopt the fatherless. And for some people right now, I believe that you're listening and you've not had that relationship with God where you legitimately have come to know him as a father. And what he's saying to you is, I want you to know that I'm your father. I want to put the spirit of adoption in your heart where you start to cry out, Abba, Father, and tears stream down your face because you know I love you. And I want to set you, because I know you're lonely, but I want to set you in a family. People that know you, people that accept you for who you are, people that love you and care for you, and people who will guide you into a deep relationship with Jesus Christ that will transform your very nature. He says, that's what I want to do. The second thing, now this is a very big one for some of you, you might learn a new word today. It's called narcissism. The second challenge to New Testament community is narcissism. Somebody say, oh boy, this is about to get good in here this morning. Everybody loves talking about narcissism, right? So the other thing that I was reading in the same context of loneliness, they started talking about narcissism. Now let me give you a scripture that'll just, that'll actually uh, fuel this. Second Timothy uh, chapter three, if you'll put that up for me. It says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Man, that's an encouraging verse. Two, the first, now it gives a big list. I'm just going to cover the first one that he lists. There'll be terrible times in the last days, folks. People will be lovers of themselves. Isn't that interesting? He could list everything. The first thing that he puts on the list is that people will be lovers of themselves. See, that's what narcissism is. If you read in Greek mythology, there was a young, beautiful hunter, kind of like Richard Jones. <coughs> he was a young, beautiful hunter, but Richard's not like this, but, but he was like it in that sense. He was beautiful and he was a hunter, right? And, and this man, had he was so beautiful that people followed him around and they fell in love with him at the drop of a hat and they'd chase him around and he hated everybody who, who loved him. He scorned them. He did not want them. He did not want to talk to them. He did not want to enter in relationship with him. But he's longing for this love, but he can't connect with anybody. And one day he's looking over at his reflection in a pond and he sees his reflection and he falls in love with himself. And he becomes so self-centered that he gets cut off from every relationship that he, that he has with people around him. Now, let me tell you something, folks. This is real in our world today. Amen. There was a study done. There was a study done, and they talked about uh, narcissism in the United States. And here's what they did. They, they did a study that started in 1948. And from 1948 to 1954, they, they asked 10,000 adolescents whether they consider themselves to be a very important person in society at large, like when it comes to trade deals and wars going on, just in the overall scheme of society, do you consider yourself to be a very important person? 12% of them said yes, 12%. They asked the same question to 10,000 adolescents in 1980, and it was almost 80%. Today they asked 10,000 adolescents, you know how many said they thought they were very important in society? 100% said they were very important as far as what's going on in the world today. Now you say, oh, but see, now we live in a culture that they're like, well, of course we're very important. Every little person is important. And you are important, but the issue is not whether or not people are important in the sense of life around us. Every human being has value. Every, every person is important. But when you ask a person themselves, am I important when it comes to what's going on in government and world relations? I'm just not that important. And when you start to have that high of an esteem of yourself, you begin to look at the world as if everything around you, you are the very center of this universe. 
Every experience that I have actually points to me being the center of the universe. You know that? You're the same way. Every experience that you have, guess who's at the center of it? You are. And nobody likes to talk about this. Let me, let me give you some characteristics of, of narcissism. These are, they have inordinate fascination with their self. They have excessive self-love. And basically what it does on, on its most minute level before it gets really, really bad is that they start to envy other people because any person who, who gets attention, it takes attention away from them. Okay? And they, have, they want you to constantly admire them, constantly talk about them, constantly lavish stuff on them. And when you get in conversation with people, they could care less. Sometimes I, sometimes I go out in the community, and, and honestly, I'm asking people about themselves and asking them questions about themselves. And what you'll start to notice is a lot of times, it's a, you, you find a unique individual when they actually ask you about yourself. That's the truth. Like, how's it going? How are you doing? How's your family? Because people, honestly, they don't care. They see everybody around them as how will this person benefit my life. As a Christian, what you have to do is actually engage all people and you have to begin to look at how can I benefit this person's life? How can I add value to this person's life? It's a switch where you turn it on your heads and you don't begin to love yourself, but you begin to love others as yourself. See, there's a change that happens there. And narcissism is getting in the way because when we come to church, basically our mentality is, what can this church offer me? And if you're a true Christian growing with Jesus, your question should be, what can I offer this church? I feel like I just had a John F. Kennedy moment right then. What can I offer this church? Because see, as a member of the body of Christ, you are sent to the body of Christ to build up and edify the body, not for the body to build up and edify you. Christ builds you up. Christ places you in the body and has given you gifts so that you might edify the body. But see, this is a big deal. I mean, how do we build loving community in a society that has a loneliness epidemic that is filled with narcissists, right? It's a difficult situation. And God is trying to move you into the place where you start to say, how can I self-sacrificially love people the way that you have loved me and just stop being a vacuum? I'm telling you, sometimes, you know, we have difficulties in life. I know we all do. And sometimes we got to talk to people about that. I vent, I talk to people, I'm in conversation with people who I know love me. And we talk about my, my issues sometimes and I get self-centered. Because when you're dealing with something difficult, man, you get very self-centered, don't you? You cannot even go out of your way to look at another person around you to say, what might they be going through? I tell you, you'd probably change your situation if you would stop thinking about what you're going through and think about what somebody else might be going through and start allowing Jesus to use you to do that. Now, let's look at Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4, just to fit, put the, frame this in its context. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's what narcissism is. It's selfish ambition. It's vain conceit. It's doing things for you. And if, you, and if, and if those people are not, if they're not going to give you anything, then I'm not going to be in a relationship with them. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Look at your neighbor and say, you know what? I value above myself. Yeah, praise God. Feels good, doesn't it? Next verse. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Man, that's a good verse right there. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I would like it if maybe we put that verse somewhere on our, on our mirror when we got up in the morning so that for at least a week, maybe even a month, I could say, we could say, Lord, this today, I don't want to look to my own interests. I want to look to the interests of others. Because if I start to look to the interests of others, I'm going to start building New Testament community and things will change. And I'm telling you right now, we run around chasing this dream and we try to fulfill our own interests and we try to fulfill uh, this, this selfish goal and this selfish ambition. And I'm telling you, true fulfillment will never come until you learn to deny yourself and live for others. And man, I'm working on it myself. I struggle with it. I, go, I, I put myself through a narcissist test all the time. You know what I'm talking about? Like even when I'm in conversation with when when I'm in conversation with people, I'm like Clay. Remember to genuinely love this person. Remember to care about this person. Remember to ask this person how they're doing, and not just let them ask you and you just tell them everything that's going on about you. It's just about me, man. I mean, I got this stuff going on and different things are happening. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all been around that? You've even done it. You've done it. And it's good. You want to share your life with people, but it's reciprocal, isn't it? I share my life, they share theirs. I receive, I can listen. 
All right, let's move on. Two core principles. If those are two, two things that hinder community, New Testament community, what are two core principles that make this community possible? And the first one is devotion to one another. Devotion to one another, just like we said. It says in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the first three words, I love it, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. See, it's devotion that makes everything else possible. And it's about the intensity and the frequency in our commitment to one another. See, in the book of Acts, they weren't even content to meet once a week. In the, in the New Testament church nowadays, it's like, boys, well, you know, I mean, Christianity, really. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I go to church on Sunday. That was not even one of the requirements in the beginning church. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like going to church on Sunday. We meet every day. We meet every day from house to house, breaking bread in fellowship, in communion with one another, and you feel excited because you go to service two out of five Sundays. Oh, man, that hurt a little bit. Let me pull back. Let me pull back. I didn't mean it. To, I didn't mean it. There was a guy. See, here's the issue. We, we truly live in a preference-based society, but a New Testament community exists in a commitment-based society. Let me ask you this question. Are you living based on your preference or are you living based on your commitments? Just hang on to that one for a minute. Because most of us, if it's comfortable, if I prefer it, then I'll do it. There was a guy, I read this, a guy wrote, and he basically, he, he took what we read in the beginning from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and he said, but here's what America does now. And he writes the gospel of America. Listen to this, I love this. He says, they studied the apostles' teaching when they had time, they went to fellowship when they could fit it in. They prayed when they needed something and had coffee together every now and then. They were content without and had low expectation for signs and wonders in their midst. Some of the believers got together and talked about generosity, but they kept all their possessions for themselves. Two out of five Sundays, they came to corporate gatherings they didn't invite people into their homes and rarely revealed their hearts. They were largely irrelevant to all other people and occasionally someone was randomly saved. I didn't write that, so don't be mad at me. I know when I read that, that doesn't like make you feel great about yourselves. But see, the point is, is that God, Christ, is building His church and He's asking you to participate with Him and be aware of the things that are going on in our culture and in our communities so that you can resist that selfishness and say, God, I am committed to, to participating with you in the, in the true building of the church of Jesus Christ. Because I believe, just as we said last week, that the church is the hope of the world. We have been given the mandate to proclaim the gospel and to live a lifestyle that is radically different from the world so that all the people would look at our lives and not say, hey, they're just like us, but they would say, these people are different. They love one another. They live in tight-knit communities where they sacrifice for one another. They care for one another. They pray for one another. And there are signs and wonders in their midst. God is doing things in their midst that point us to the coming kingdom and we believe that that is a better way of life. That is an alternative way of life. And that looks like light. That looks like truth. And therefore, we want to get involved in that. But see, when you see the book of Acts and you see all these, these miracles and this power going on, I was talking with Alan Bray just the other day. He said, man, I've been doing this Bible study. I've been looking at the book of Acts. And he said, there are 40 miraculous instances where something miraculous happens in the book of Acts. And he said, 39 out of 40 happen outside of any religious setting. What do you think about that? You read in the book of Acts, there's 40 miraculous things that happen, and the only one that happens in, in almost a religious setting is the man that a lame man is healed at the gate of the temple. He wasn't even in the temple. Point being is, you start taking this out inside into your homes, you invite people into your homes, the community. You're out in the community talking with people, praying with people, loving on people, inviting people into this new lifestyle, not just simply your church. Should you invite people to church on Sunday? Yes, you absolutely should because it is a way to introduce them to this community, introduce them to the gospel. But see, you're inviting them to more than just church. You're inviting them into your life. You understand that? That's how you produce true community. It's about devotion to one another, see, but we have to learn to live by commitment and not preference. And I'll tell you why, because I bet Jesus did not prefer dying on the cross for your sins. 
I bet Jesus did not prefer taking lashes to his back 39 times. I bet Jesus didn't prefer nails in his hands or thorns in his head. I bet he didn't prefer it, but he was committed to you because he made it a covenant with you, signed and sealed in love in his blood. And when you enter into the church community, look, some people, I told the Lord before, I said, Lord, some of these people, I don't know if I can deal with them. And he says, Clay, I'm not even asking you to deal with them. I'm asking you to make a commitment to them that is a covenant relationship that regardless of what they do, you're going to be committed to their health and their spiritual well-being. But we live in a culture where if it gets difficult, if it gets hard, man... I told somebody the other day they came in here for Bible release program and we had we had uh, we had 126 kids in here and we got they preached the gospel and it, it was a wonderful time and they said yeah we about didn't know where your church was we had to drive around the back I said you know we did that on purpose because we don't want anybody to come <laughs> of course I was joking right I was joking but the point is is sometimes I feel like. I feel like sometimes the way we live, maybe we think we want people to come, but are we willing to make the commitment and the covenant when people do come? And I think what you'll find is, is the more you're willing to make the commitment and the covenant with people, that you'll find that more and more will come because they say, man, these people love you for who you are. These people care about you. Secondly, my last thing here is that it is practice-based. This is one of the principles that make this community possible from Acts chapter 2, and that it is practice-based rather than opinion-based. You say, I don't know what that means, Clay. We'll get into it. Now, if you read, see, they've got practices like it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were filled with all many signs and wonders were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold all their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They were together every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of the people, right? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, sometimes I believe we think that small groups exist to share our preferences and opinions on the quality of other Christian events we've attended rather than do the practices that Jesus has taught us. You know what I'm talking about? Like how many small groups have you been to and really really it's more about you get in a small group and there's some gossip that goes on. There's some conversation about how we didn't really like worship on Sunday. There's conversation about how well, the sermon's not that good. You know, I mean, I mean, Clay's all right, but he's not as good a preacher as Donald. And, 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 you know, and you start discussing these things about what your preferences are and what your opinions are. And let me tell you this. Your opinions are okay, I guess, as long as they don't enter into a realm of gossip and backbiting and things like that. Your opinions are okay, but you cannot build New Testament community on your opinions. You can only build New Testament community on your practices, on what you practice, on what Jesus has committed for us to practice. And see, what happens is it's very important that when you meet in small groups and you meet in community, what you practice and your devotion creates an environment for God to break in. Somebody amen me, right? The way we practice, the way we pray together, the way we come together and we praise God and we lay down our lives for one another and we fellowship daily and we're surrendered to one another and committed to one another, you are actually creating an environment for God to break in because it says that, listen, many signs and wonders were being done. They were in awe of what God was doing among them. And let me, I mean, imagine this. You get such a radical move of God that people's hearts are so stirred that they are literally selling their homes and their possessions and everything that they own and bringing it in and say, let's just, let's just give this to everybody who has need. And I mean, I don't, I don't mean to get political, but you know, the, the, the economy is always a big issue. And, and we, in America, we have capitalism. And there has been communism in the past. Communism, it, people say, well, you see what they did? They were just, they were giving away all their stuff and everybody had the same amount and they just gave it. Now, see, that's communism, that's socialism, that's what we need. That's what people would say. Now, here's what I will say about that. If you look throughout history, communism has never really worked. It's messed stuff up. And I'm not saying this from a p- political viewpoint. In capitalism, it's worked good, but you still see this huge difference between the rich and the poor. But see, what they had was neither of those. What they had was communalism. 
And what that meant was Jesus, it wasn't that somebody forced them from the government to give out of an impure heart. Jesus radically transformed their hearts and out of a pure heart, they decided to give out of love. That's the only way that that would ever work. And I'm going to tell you something, every man-made economic system is going to break down and cease to work. And Jesus is going to have to come back and set real systems back in order. And it's not going to work till Jesus comes back. But they had something different where Jesus was moving their hearts. And, there, and, and see, as a result, there was continual salvation. It says because they had these communities that were radically devoted to one another and sacrificing for one another, the Lord was adding to them daily such as should be saved. Can you imagine that kind of community? When it, when's the last time... Like you got excited to the point about church that you were in awe of what God was doing. You know what I'm saying? Like you came to church and you were in awe and you were just like, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm amazed at what God is doing in our church and in our community and, and in our small groups. When we meet, the presence of God is real. People are loving one another. You see uh, us sharing our hearts and confessing our sins and, and lives being transformed. And, and, and we're moved, we're compelled by love to reach out into the community. And I just, I just see people being reached. And there's drug addicts that are being delivered and set free. And they're coming to Christ. And I'm just in awe. But see, we've lived in a preference-based society for so long that some of that stuff is difficult. It's challenging. We don't want to get too over-involved because it may ask more of me than I'm willing to commit to. And, and, you know, I told Donald, I said, I was talking to him about this message and I was talking to him about commitment. And I said, you know, I'm going to talk more about commitment and stuff like that. Commitment to the body of Christ. And he said, he said, you know, the issue isn't commitment, really. The issue is people are very committed. They're just committed to the wrong things. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Many of you, you're very committed. You're just committed to the wrong things. And Jesus may be saying, in your life, what are you more interested in? Are you more interested in yourself and what you think is going to fulfill you? Are you more interested in my kingdom and the life that I've called you to live and the advancement of that kingdom? And what are you willing to lay down so that you can create this kind of community? Now, I know, listen, when we're talking about small groups, when you enter into small groups and you you take that leap, It's kind of like this. People do this in church, and I'll even notice this. I notice like people who have been going to church here for a long time and and then people who are coming on that are new. And what you'll see is this. When people first get involved, there's a level of excitement, right? You're like, man, I love this church. This is awesome. I'm really enjoying it. I'm having a good time, and I'm excited. And then you enter into the community, and you meet a couple of people that are a little bit weird, or you have something, uh, you know, maybe they say something that you don't like very much, You enter into that. They bother you a little bit. Then you get disillusioned. You're like, man, this community is kind of jacked up. These people are messed up just like me. And they ain't that great. And then then all of a sudden, you're just downhearted a little bit. And then you go through that season for year after year after year. And I notice people, they burn out. Like, man, this ain't it. And some of you, man, you need a fresh touch from God. Some of you that have been in Christian community for a long time, you need a fresh touch from God. Because I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know you get hurt. I know sometimes you get overworked. But you need to re—you need to reconnect with God and a relationship with God and receive life-sustaining power from His Spirit. And you need to enter into community, not where you're a vacuum, but where you are pouring into other people because you're receiving from God. Somebody amen me this morning. That's where we need to go to. That's where we need to move to. See, all love has to enable one of you. And this, I'm going to finish right here. The word vulnerable comes from the Latin word valere, and it means, it means to wound. And what happens is, in a Christian community, every, per, every person, if you enter into Christian community, you will get wounded by someone. Amen. Can I tell you that that means that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. I'll tell you why. Because you get an opportunity to live like Jesus. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. He opened himself up for us. He loved us to the very end. And what did we do? We wounded him. We beat him on his back. We crucified him on a tree. 
And he said, Lord, if this is what it takes for me to love them and for their hearts to be open, then I'll take the wounding. And some of you, you need to realize that the wounding is not the end of your life. Jesus will heal you. He will restore you. And he will cause you to love love other people even when they have wounded you. He will restore relationships. And his love will flow through you because I'm telling you, true agape love. You're going to have to move, press past. I know you got excited. I know you got disillusioned. I know you're kind of like, well, it's not as good as I thought it was. But you've got to push past all that to enter into agape, self-sacrificial, loving relationships and say, God, I'm going to press through. I'm going to open my heart. I'm going to trust again. And I'm going to be open to being wounded because I'm going to have to love people. And that's where God's calling you to. Let me read a couple of verses and we'll be done. John, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Next verse. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. You get the message, right? As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Next verse. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. It's a common theme, isn't it? I just want you to bow your head with me. Let's pray together. Because I know this has had to have spoken to some of you, but see, we're trying to build a community in the kingdom of God that is not based on our preference, but is based on the kind of love that Jesus loved you with. And I know this morning, maybe you say, I don't even know if I'm a part of that community. I don't even know if I know Jesus or not. And right now, I want you to decide. I want you to make a commitment to the Lord and say, Jesus, I, I, I I sense you pulling. And I want to commit myself to you. I want to follow you. But for those of you who do know him, I want you to say, Lord, I'm ready to take this step where I don't just commit myself to you in theory, but I commit myself to your people and to your body. And I want to love people with a sincere heart. And I want to create through the power of your spirit this kind of community where there is self-sacrificial love, where we pray together, where we fellowship together, where we practice devotion to you, Lord Jesus, where we study the apostles' teaching and we're in the scripture night and day. And we, we learn to lay down our lives for other people, God. Would you do that in our hearts? Would you create this kind of community in us? Would you change us and teach us how to truly love? And Lord, we just pray lastly that you would create this community. You would create New Testament community in City of Hope Church, but God, it would expand just beyond this church. It would expand, Lord, to the other churches that are in this community, that we would be a light, God, and that our hearts would be open again, Lord, that you would heal broken hearts where people have been hurt. Lord, you'd change them and you'd make them new. Lord, I ask that your word would take root and change us, God, in Jesus' name.